about to introduce the right lecture. And since next year we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the first power flight by the Wright brothers, you'll hear much about their achievements next year and also about many others who have contributed over the past 100 years. So what I intend to do this evening by way of introduction is just to speak briefly about the contribution and the connection between the Royal Arnold Society and the Wright brothers. I'm grateful to Ryan Riddle, the Royal Arnold Society librarian, for researching this information for me. Wilbur Wright's first technical paper, entitled Angle of Incidence, was published by the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain, which was the, the former name of the Royal Aeronautical Society, in the Aeronautical Journal in 1901. I don't think John was the editor there. The Society members were kept informed by Hoptev Chanute and others of the Wright's early aeronautical experiments. In his presidential address to, delivered to the Society almost exactly 100 years ago, in fact, 100 years ago yesterday, Major Baden-Powell observed, In America, Mr. Wilbur Wright and his brother have been making wonderful progress with gliding machines. The following year, on December 17th, the Wright brothers achieved the world's first manned, controlled, sustained, powered flight in a heavier-than-air machine, with all the Wright at the controls of the Wright flyer. The Aeronautical Journal published details of the flight in April 1904, based upon a true and authentic account of these experiments, which had been sent to the Society by Orville Wright. In May 1908, Wilbur Wright travelled to France, where his demonstrations of the flight control of the Wright A revolutionised the development of European aviation. An amateur balloonist, Griffith Brewer, who subsequently became president of the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1940, was amongst the group of members who travelled out from the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain to see the Wright machine. He later became Wright's, Britain, Wright's British patent agent, and Wilbur Wright refers in a letter held in the Society's library to a stopwatch used by him on his European demonstration flights. And I have that very watch here, and uh, Professor Pohl, you will note, we will be using this to time the, the lecture and to keep <laughs> time this evening. You may like to know that to coincide with the 2003 centenary celebrations of the Wright Brothers' first flight, the Society is publishing the text of the library's Wright letters in full. Much of this material has never been published before, so look out for the publication date next year. As I mentioned earlier, just over 90 years ago, the Society's first gold medal was awarded to the Wright Brothers in recognition of their distinguished services to aeronautical science. It is therefore entirely appropriate that this year's Wright Lecture is given by our past president, Professor Ian Pohl, who has himself provided distinguished service to aeronautical science. Professor Pohl, the immediate past president of the Society, is Director of the College of Aeronautics and Professor of Aerospace Engineering at Cranfield University and Technical Director of Cranfield Aerospace Limited. Ian Paul graduated from Imperial College London in 1972 in aeronautical engineering. He joined Hawke Siddeley Aviation and then moved to the Corridor of Aeronautics to carry out an 
Ministry of Defence-sponsored research in the field of aerodynamics. This encouraged him to remain in academia, and in 1978 he was appointed to a lectureship at the College of Aeronautics. A strong US interest in his work on transition and aerodynamic heating resulted in a period of sabbatical leave at the NASA Langley Research Centre. In 1987, he moved to the University of Manchester to become Professor of Aeronautical Engineering and Director of the Goldstein Aeronautical Engineering Research Laboratory. In 1995, he returned to Cranfield as Head of the College of Aeronautics and Professor of Aerospace Engineering. His research activities have led to the production of over 150 journal papers, conference papers and reports, and he has presented over 70 seminars and invited lectures. In 1966, he was elected to serve on the Council of the Royal Aeronautical Society. He chaired the Learned Society Board and was elected a Vice President, becoming President in 2001. He's Chairman of the Society's Cranfield University Branch. In addition, he's a member of the DTI's Aerospace Committee, the SBAC Foresight Action Steering Committee, the Program Committee member of the International Council of Aeronautical Sciences, Vice President of the Confederation of European Aerospace Societies and a coordinator of the European Aerospace Science Network. He was elected to Fellowship of the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1987 and Fellowship of the Royal Academy of Engineering in 1996. This year he was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Golden Jubilee Birthday Honours List for services to the College of Aeronautics at Cranfield. Clearly a very distinguished career in aeronautical science. I think it's perhaps somewhat ironic that when we look back in the turn of the 19th century, so many of the lectures here in the society were directed at man flight and the future of man flight. And the Wright Lecture itself celebrates the first powered man flight. So the topic tonight is the future of unmanned flight. Professor Ian Paul. So Robert, ladies and gentlemen, guests of the society and one or two friends who are out in the audience, it's a great privilege and an honour to be invited to give the Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. Uh, it's a particular uh, privilege to be able to give it at a time when there are changes in the wind, in aerospace and, and aeronautics and aviation as well. And so, as the President has just told you, the title of the lecture is, Is the Future Unmanned? Now, I intend to be uh, stimulating and I intend to be provocative, um, probably not both at the same time to individuals. I don't want to uh, upset anybody and anything that I may say is intended in the spirit of looking forward and trying to chart a new future. So if you'd please not throw stones at me or hit me when it's all over, I'd be very grateful. Okay, let's begin. In aviation, it's often a very good thing to start at the beginning and see how things developed and why, because there are often some very important lessons to be learned from the past. So let's go back to Sir George Cayley, the father of the aeroplane. 
Kaylee, as most of you know, was uh, extremely interested in flight, and one of the key questions is why? Kaylee recognized that the Industrial Revolution, which he was a, a, a party to, I mean, he was one of the landed gentry, he was there at the time, he was swept along by everything that was, was happening. He recognized that the Industrial Revolution needed transportation to bring raw materials to the factories and take products to the market. He saw clearly that road, rail and sea were limited. However, he recognized that transport by air would remove many of the limitations of the other modes and in doing so would bring huge economic benefits. This led Cayley to begin his scientific contribution. He recognized that fixed wing heavier than air flight was quite possible. In other words, it did not contravene any laws of physics that were known at the time. He identified the fundamental importance of aerodynamic lift to support weight and the need for thrust to overcome aerodynamic drag, as indicated on the engravings on the Cayley medal, which is shown on the left-hand side of the slide. He built and flew small gliders, and reputedly he also built man-carrying gliders. Okay, so why did it take a hundred years for, for us to progress to the Wright brothers? Well, Cayley's problem was technology. He had no understanding of aerodynamic efficiency. He had no strong light materials. He had no concept of, of designing efficient structures. He had no light, powerful prime mover. And he had no understanding of guidance and control. All those things were necessary. And to his credit, he struggled with some of them within the limits of his own personal finances and the science and technology of the day, sadly to no avail. What he did realize, however, was that he alone could not solve these problems, and so by lobbying his friends, some of whom were very powerful in uh, British society at that time, he was the father of the formation of what is now the Royal Aeronautical Society. So Cayley not only understood that things could be done, but he realized that he couldn't do it by himself. He realized he needed technology, and he realized he needed to integrate knowledge before we could make progress. These gentlemen benefited from that knowledge. The Wright brothers were initially motivated by curiosity. They had a thriving business in bicycles, which was a very big business in the latter half of the 19th century. And it was the, what shall we do in the evenings, that captured their uh, imagination. They then developed a successful flying machine first, and then they tried to sell it. Unfortunately, once the genie was out of the bottle, they could not control it. I mean, they tried desperately to protect their position with patents, and in the end, they lost out. Um, they were probably very badly treated, and I believe that they were, they were disillusioned and sad people. But the message here is that with something like aviation, once the genie was out of the bottle, nobody could control it. It would then be picked up and developed by others, and it would acquire a life and a size and an impetus of its own. The aeroplane owes more to the bicycle than it does to science. 
because the Wright brothers recognized the fundamental importance of the relationship between the stability characteristics of the machine and the capabilities of the pilot, something everybody who tries to ride a bicycle knows. They understood the importance of aerodynamic efficiency, which was a key contribution, and they understood the role of model testing. So they knew how to generate knowledge when the knowledge they needed did not exist. And they knew how to design and build low-cost, light and stiff structures. Again, the bicycle was extremely useful in that regard. Last but by no means least, they had the gasoline engine available and they used it. The consequence was that, as we've just heard, on the 17th of December 1903, they produced a successful man-carrying, controlled, heavier-than-air aircraft. The Wright brothers were able to succeed because the technologies that they needed to achieve their objective were available. They did not have to invent anything themselves, and they were in fact integrators of technology. So, once the 20th century began in flight, what happened? Well, it began as a sport for well-to-do people. It wasn't generated uh, by an industry that demanded air transport or air cargo transport or military missions. It began as a sport for well-to-do people. The technology development initially was stimulated by competitions. Uh, for example, Lord Northcliffe's Daily Mail prizes for a range of firsts. First flight from London to Manchester, first flight across the Channel, first flight across the Atlantic. Pilots became international celebrities. The gentleman in this illustration is Claude Graham White, and this picture is taken from the front cover of Vanity Fair. Graham White was the David Beckham of his day. Nobody was interested in football in those days, but they were interested in flying and they were interested in pilots. And pilots were the uh, international celebrities of their era, which starts to tell you why pilots became so important. First World War came along. Now technology really started to be pulled through and aviation advanced very rapidly indeed. Pilots now became war heroes. Does anybody know who the war hero in this, in this illustration is? Well, it's Mick Manick. He was reputedly the highest scoring uh, uh, UK pilot. But never mind, you can see from the, from the nature of the people that the, that, that the star quality is clearly there. Then between the wars, military aviation declined. Civil aviation began to develop, and aviation pioneers were still major public celebrities. We've got Amy Johnson and Charles Lindbergh here, just to give two examples. Then the Second World War came along. Massive technology pull, huge investment in aeronautics by all major players. Major advances in design, manufacturing and technology. The jet engine is pulled through. Incredible advances. The Battle of Britain, one of the most important and significant military actions, establishes the value of air power. Pilots, again, are the national heroes. They become knights of the sky. In the last 50 years, Cayley's vision has come to reality. The use of aviation for transportation. Civil aviation now, a major international business, an essential part 
of the world's commercial infrastructure. That's what Cayley wanted. It's just taken a little longer than he'd hoped to come to fruition. Aircrew are now highly respected professionals and sometimes heroes if they have to fight off hijackers or things like that. The last 50 years in military aviation has also seen great advances. Huge technical growth. The air is the key environment for intelligence gathering and for strike. We now know that beyond any doubt at all. The cost of systems has grown enormously. And airborne systems produced by a very large industrial players. A small number of massive players dominate military aerospace. So, a hundred years of man-controlled flight. It's an amazing success story, no question about that. However, whilst all this was going on, there was something else happening. And to understand what that was, we need to wind the clock back a hundred years again. I'll probably get struck by a thunderbolt for this, but what about the Wright brothers' great rival, Samuel Langley? Langley, I contend, is the father of the UAV. He began work on the problem of heavier-than-air flying machines in 1886. His approach to the problem was very different from the Wrights. First of all, he was a high-profile academic, so he did everything under the gaze of anybody and everybody. He also preferred, and this was this comes from his basic scientific training, to first build an unmanned vehicle and then work his way up, which is not what the Wright brothers did, of course. Between 1890 and 1896, he worked with six versions of a machine which he incorrectly called an aerodrome. He was trying to use Greek, and he, he didn't get very good advice on his Greek um, his Greek words, but he called his machines aerodromes. In particular, aerodrome number five, which had a wingspan of about four meters, a length of four meters, weighed roughly 11 kilograms, and had a one horsepower steam engine, and was catapult launched. On May 6th, 1896, number five flew, following a catapult launch, as shown in the picture, for two minutes. It flew until the burner ran out and the steam engine stopped. It covered a distance of 1,005 metres, so over a kilometre at an altitude of about 35 metres. It completed three full circles at a speed of somewhere between 20 and 25 miles an hour. It then stopped and glided down into shallow water of the Potomac. An hour later, they reloaded it, and it did exactly the same thing again. So, May the 6th, 1896, was the day when the first unpiloted, engine-driven, heavier-than-air vehicle of substantial size flew successfully and unarguably. Continuously, there has been an interest in aeroplanes that didn't have pilots. Um, because of the heavy losses of uh, Royal Flying Corps pilots in 1915, it was proposed that they would fly uh, unmanned aeroplanes called aerial torpedoes, which could carry explosives or whatever to targets, by, and they would be guided by radio control. Unfortunately, it was the radio control technology that wasn't up to the task, and so it never really uh, got off the ground. In the 1930s, uh, the Queen Bee, which is a, a de Havilland Tiger Moth, 
with radio control was used for gunnery practice. As shown in the illustration, the corporal is, is flying the aeroplane. I don't know whether it's under control, that's not possible to tell, but uh, there is certainly a relationship between what he's doing and what the aircraft's doing. And the Queen Bee, uh, there weren't very many of these built, but they were used as targets between 1930 and 1946. Much more successful was uh, Reginald Denny's company, which made a thing called the radio plane. This was also a gunnery target. Catapult launched, parachute recovered, 12-foot wingspan. Over 3,500 radio planes were made for artillery practice. Marilyn Monroe was a radio plane manufacturer. She worked on the production line uh, in California. Then, of course, during the Second World War, there was the amazing technological development brought through by the Germans. This is almost like the uh, Aerospace International Christmas Quiz. If you can tell me what these are, well, I'll buy you a drink afterwards. But you have to get them all right. Then we move to Vietnam. In Vietnam, UAVs were used in reconnaissance and combat. They were used as surface-to-air missile busting decoys. Ryan Teledyne used remotely piloted vehicles for photo reconnaissance, real-time video, electronic intelligence, communications and battle damage assessment. Thousands of missions were flown. In the 1980s, we moved up to the development of the cruise missile. The Boeing Condor high-altitude long-endurance vehicle with a 200-foot wingspan that could fly at 67,000 feet for more than 80 hours. Highly stealthy vehicle as well because it was made of composite material entirely. Tactical and medium endurance UAVs were developed such as the Pioneer System for the Navy and the Hunter System for the Army. Then something very important happened. There was a pivotal and potentially disruptive uh, event when in 1994, a system of 24 satellites orbiting at an altitude of 11,000 nautical miles was completed. The global positioning system allows the accurate determination of position to be provided continuously. A piece of technology long awaited by the builders of unpiloted vehicles. So, after a 100 years of controlled powered flight involving humans, a new phase of aerospace development was made possible. At the same time, we have developed other highly relevant technologies. Computer processing power and miniaturization has been pushed through by the, the personal computer market. If you think what personal computers, well, they didn't even exist 25 years ago, and what they are capable of now, you can get some sense of the rate of development in that particular area. Satellite-based communications and mobile phone technologies are pulling through huge capability via the communications market. Data processing, information processing, data security and artificial intelligence are being driven by internet and computer games markets. And information technology and nanotechnology are developing rapidly and they need to be fused with air vehicle technology. So what do UAVs look like today? Well, they're, ba they're basically broken down into three different groups and they're driven at present by military demands. 
First of all, we have the Uninhabited Combat Air Vehicle, or the UCAV. It's intended to attack targets, carry weapons, or be a weapon itself. Um, you'll all be aware, I guess, that the Predator, which is the top figure, is the one that has been used to carry missiles which have been fired at undesirables uh, who have been identified, targeted and eliminated. UCAVs can be launched from and recovered to air, sea or land. They can be remotely piloted vehicles, i.e. you can have a man in a box with a control column flying it, or they can be completely autonomous. In other words, they are simply told to go somewhere and the vehicle figures out how to get there and flies itself there. They can be integrated with manned aircraft force, potentially, to make force multipliers. High altitude long endurance is another category. Surveillance and reconnaissance is the objective here. They are optimized for endurance and used for image gathering, intelligence gathering, data relay, weather reports, weather prediction, target designation and countermeasure deployment. Then we have the third group, the tactical UAVs. Now there are many different kinds. These are typically the small ones. Mary did many, many different kinds proposed. They have specialized purposes. Some have dual use. In other words, they can be used in civil and military domains. Useful as low-cost technology demonstrators and risk reducers. They can be very low cost. They can be model aeroplanes, in fact. But what are the key issues that face us today? This is all very well having these things, but what are we going to do with them? Or what is going to pull new developments through? Present military situation, my opinion. Equipment designed for battles that will probably never be fought offer threats that no longer exist. Focused and severely constrained by the human in the cockpit. The cost of advanced technology is now too high even for the richest nations. The cost of training is incredibly high. The equipment is kept in service far longer than necessary because the replacement cost is so high. Military options are often limited by the equipment available, so there is an intrinsic lack of flexibility in response. And consequently, there is a danger of disproportionate response. So what's the challenge? We have new kinds of threats. It's probably unlikely that we will be invaded directly by an assault on our shores. It's probably unlikely that we will send in huge armies of occupation into territories in the future. We have threats now which are not even battlefield-based. We have the, the, the subtle, invidious terrorist threats against uh, of um, biological warfare, of chemical warfare, uh, dirty nuclear bombs. All these things actually bring the battlefield here. They bring them into our very back gardens. And they're not always easy to deploy our existing forces against. We also have the concerns of information warfare, interrupting the technology that delivers money to the cash machines. Imagine what would happen if somebody managed to stop money coming out of the banks. You wouldn't have to invade the country, we would happily kill ourselves. And it wouldn't take very long. 
I mean, I leave you to guess how long it would take before civil order broke down, probably no more than three days. So a lot of the threats that we face today are not suited to countermeasures based on conventional defense systems. The new battlefields, I've already said, cyberspace, our own cities, our own food supplies, our own back gardens, effectively. Homeland defense, two years ago, nobody spoke about homeland defense. Now it's a major issue. How do we protect ourselves from the threats that we currently face? Cost. Everything has to be affordable. It doesn't matter if the, if the cost, uh, if, if a threat is uh, small or great, you always have to be able to afford to counter it. Development time. As threats vary rapidly, do our countermeasures or our responses vary rapidly? I mean, the current uh, project cycle time for a military aeroplane can be 20 years. Well, the world can change an awful lot in 20 years, and by the time the thing comes into service, it may not be suited to the environment at the time in which it is going to be used. So we would ideally like to get development time down to a very short period indeed. So what I'm arguing for is a new, more flexible solution is needed, and it's needed urgently. Now, what's the problem with people? People are an important political consideration. We can now no longer afford to lose a single human life in military activities. Putting a human inside a military aeroplane increases the stakes enormously and puts our politicians at a tremendous disadvantage if anything happens to that person. People are also complex and highly unpredictable. They have almost an infinite number of failure modes they can be irrational, and, sadly, they can also be deliberately evil. People cost a great deal to train, as I've said, and a great deal to keep current. They also have to be motivated and rewarded. And in future, military aircrew will spend less and less time in the air and more and more time in simulators. And you can't be a knight of the air in a simulator. So the potential for future development of man-rated systems is limited. We need to open up this new line of development to take aerospace and aviation forward. It's now a hundred years since Langley demonstrated that first UAV and a number of important enabling technologies have appeared in other sectors that can now be integrated with the airframe. <coughs> So, my contention is the UAV is a concept whose time has come. UAVs have no biological limits. We have no limit on speed. Our UAV can fly very slowly, or it can fly at many times the speed of sound. We don't have the traditional problems of protecting the pilot from the aerodynamic environment in which he is immersed. No limits on maneuverability. <laughs> And by that I mean turn rates, instantaneous and continuous. Uh, once the pilot is removed, you can maneuver at almost any G-level imaginable, uh, presumably limited by things like when the engine shaft starts to bend and rub against the bearings. So agility and ability to avoid attack becomes very easy. No limit on altitude. 
the pantomime that we have to get a person in a cockpit at 70,000 feet is almost unbelievable. If the person isn't there, then 70,000 feet, 100,000 feet, 150,000 feet are thinkable. No limit on endurance. No need to install a bathroom. The aeroplane without the pilot can stay on station forever. No limit on pilot skill. There are many tasks which a UAV could be asked to do which a pilot simply could not perform. No limit on physical size. It can now be very small or it can be very large. No limits on the way you launch it. No limits on the way you recover it. No limits on the shape that it is. And no limits on the amount of intelligence that it can carry. So, no airborne crew limits on time on station, as I've said. So dull missions are no problem. No issues of fatigue or boredom. No limits on the environments that can be investigated. So we can send a UAV into a chemically hostile environment, a biologically hostile environment, or even a nuclear hostile environment without concern. No risk to life. Hostile environments, no problem. So now a whole new range of possibilities arises. Possibilities for UCAVs. Performance not limited by human payload. Low observable issues eased through possibility of small size. Routine and rapid decision making through onboard artificial intelligence. Armed with a, very, with a wide variety of weapons. Could be a missile, doesn't have to come back. How many do we require? Well, in UCAVs, it could be hundreds to thousands, depending on the role. If they're non-returnable, then it could be thousands. If they return, perhaps hundreds. Very low utilisation. Not flown for pilot training, not flown for mission training. Virtually no aftermarket. Storage life five to ten years. Emphasis on low cost and simplicity. What technologies can we release? New configurations, things like the blended wing body with low drag technologies. These can now be used to extend ranges by factors of two to three. The reason this is easier is because you can build smaller vehicles. When you've got people in, you're limited to scale. Some of these drag technologies get very difficult if the vehicle gets large. Novel fuels. You can now consider further extending range by using, say, hydrogen. Not a particular problem in a military environment. You can use propulsion systems that are based on high-risk physics. In other words, if there's no man in it, then you can be a little more adventurous in the type of systems that you install. We can get extreme maneuverability through active flow control, which we've never been able to use on man-rated vehicles. Circulation control can double the maximum lift coefficient. It can enhance survivability in hostile environments and it can make recovery easier. Novel control systems like wing warping and thrust vectoring can give additional performance to low observable configurations. Self-healing systems, again where you don't need the pilot, the machine if it's damaged assesses what it's got left in terms of control and then reconfigures the scheme to manoeuvre itself using the pieces that are still working. Possibilities for high altitude, permanently on station, 
recover only for repair and refurbishment, replace satellites for certain tasks, operating groups to provide vastly improved information gathering capability and system redundancy. What are the market issues here? Well, the number required could again be hundreds to thousands. Continuous heavy operation now, big aftermarket, big through life support. Technically, these could be very complex. Need a significant number of people involved in the operation. Again, aim for a service life five to ten years. Possibilities for tactical UAVs, well, I won't even begin to try and describe this because it's only limited by the imagination. So like insects, they'll become highly specialised and highly diverse in their variety. And I don't mean by that that we should build mechanical insects. That's, a, that's another story for another day. Market issues now, ranging from a few to a lot. I have no idea what the market would look like. They must be low cost, that's true. Probably disposable. Service life, or life in service, less than five years. Little or no skill required to operate. Autonomy is extremely important in the tactical UAV area. Limited number of tasks performed. They could be very sophisticated. So, I think international events will, and in fact right now, are advancing the, tech, the agenda. And technology is going to bring increased operational capability, amazing capability. Two to three orders of magnitude in reduced first cost and cost of ownership. Development time down to a couple of years. Equipment always optimised for the current threat. Very low cost of ownership, no training issues. Where's the money going to come from? We always have to ask that because these things don't come free. It will come through savings from reduced numbers, reduced cost of acquisition, reduced through life cost, reduced training cost, reduction in the number of people required, and the potential for reduction of total defence cost whilst delivering more capability is clearly there. What about civil aviation? Civil aviation nowadays, the issues are economy, safety, security and environment. Cheaper, safer and cleaner, in a nutshell. The challenge here is to reduce the cost of air transport for both passenger and freight operations, to reduce the absolute accident rate, and to reduce the vulnerability of civil aircraft to terrorist attack. Again, for those elements, we have a problem with people. Aircrew are an expensive element in civil aircraft operations because they're expensive to train and they're expensive to retain. 80% of all accidents involve human error. People are always the weakest link in hijacking situations. And here's an interesting thought. These things were less of a problem when civil pilots were drawn from the military because military pilots, A, had a military background which put them in a better situation for hijacking and they also had a lot of hours spent doing funny manoeuvres in aeroplanes. They had better airmanship and a better background. Now we train people ab issue on light aeroplanes and expect them to perform well in situations which they may never have experienced in reality, although they may have experienced partially in simulation. So as the military source dries up, it passes an increasing problem into the civil sector.
So the contributions to civil aviation would be to use autonomy to de-skill the piloting task. Not necessarily to remove a man from the cockpit altogether, but to make the whole task a much lower level activity. Cockpit crew would then be easier to train and cheaper to maintain. Aim for no crew at all in cargo operations. New air traffic models to allow more efficient operation and reduce nuisance value. And air traffic control decisions to be automated. Hopefully then avoiding the disastrous conflicts that sometimes occur as occurred in the accident over Lake Constance recently when there were people doing things that were getting the whole situation into a terrible mess. And of course this would then avoid them going on strike, particularly in France every November when the pay rounds go up. Then there are the civilian applications of UAV technology. Scientific missions, for example pollution monitoring. Weather forecasting. There's a big issue here because to get better weather forecasts you need better data input. And at the moment we don't get good data input. Fleets of little UAVs buzzing around gathering information close to the ground and feeding that information into the weather uh, computer predictions would result in considerably improved weather forecasting capability. In fact, you could go down to uh, highly accurate local forecasts in a way that we just simply cannot envisage today. Land monitoring, in fact, the, uh, uh, the Helios vehicle shown in the, in the top uh, picture there is already being used uh, off Hawaii for monitoring coffee crops to see whether they're ready to be harvested or not. Communications platforms is another one. Surveillance and security. The perennial question of what's going on down there. Do we like the look of it? Do we want to interfere with it? And last but by no means least, the potential for traffic monitoring. So now, a list of questions. How do we prevent crime? How do we manage our resources better? How can we anticipate natural disasters? How do we get better internet service? How do we get better weather forecasts? All these questions will demand growth of markets for knowledge and information. And these will be, these will be the products that will generate the commercial pull. Some of these questions we're already asking. There is a huge potential for the improvement of quality of life and security in those questions. They will be the industries of the next century. Who will lead the way? Who's going to provide the vision? These are very important questions now. Where are the Cayleys? Where are the Wright brothers today? Who will be the big players and why? Is it possible for individuals today to create new industries, new players, new supply chains, new markets? Will the current primes maintain their positions? Historically, that has not happened. Um, very few companies uh, manage to survive transitions from one kind of product to another. Those that do survive usually change what they do completely. Is it possible for small groups to be important? I've already asked that one. Do we need new primes and new supply chains to deliver the full potential of UAVs? 
where is the best business to be found? Reducing cost and increasing capability is the best way to open up this new line of development. But this is not trivial. It's very easy for me to say, but it's not obvious what the answers are. So let's just worry about the UK for a minute. What about the UK? We've played a major role in the advancement of aerospace and aviation for 200 years. Today, as most of you know, we have the second largest aerospace economy in the world. What are we doing to secure a leadership position in this emerging market and ensure that aerospace continues to be a major creator of wealth? Because this is a huge threat to the nation. My contention again is sadly we are not doing enough. The global military agenda is being driven not by plans, not by foresight exercises, but by events. Change is now coming very rapidly. And experience tells us that advances in the civil sector will follow advances in the defence sector. So, it's already clear that the future will not be a simple extrapolation of the past. Now we come back to the society. The society has a broad church membership with both influence and unparalleled knowledge of aerospace and aviation. We have to rise to these challenges of the third century of aviation before we are shut out by our competitors and our enemies. And on that note, I will end. Thank you. <laughs> Professor Paul has um, given us a, an excellent overview and, and a vision of the way ahead. 20 years or so, where do we go? What do we need to invest in? Okay, Keith, I, I have more questions than answers. You'll not be surprised to hear. Um, I suppose all I would ask is that we actually collectively consider it. I mean, no, no person has um, the complete picture. What worries me is that we're not actually addressing the questions. I mean, I think in 20 years' time, UAVs will be a very important element of somebody's business. Not necessarily the Rolls-Royces, the BAE Systems, the Lockheed Martins, or the Boeing's business. I mean, I, I, my crystal ball doesn't go that far ahead. But they will be out there, and they will still be called aviation and aerospace. And one of the questions that we should ask ourselves, in, ask ourselves as a nation is, how do we formulate a strategy which makes sure that we don't get locked out of developments in the next zero to ten years. I know I'm not answering your question, but, but I can't, really. All I can do is say it should be on the agenda. Might I take you back to language? That's a very good question. In, in, in fact, in fact um, number five flew in circles of, a, of a, several hundred metres. in. They were gentle circles. They weren't tight circles. Uh, number six flew in a long arc. It didn't make a circle. So I suspect that it was just that the the trim of the vehicle happened to give it a circular path. But you're right. I mean, it was it was a, a, a major uh, step forward for for the man-carrying aircraft people when they actually deviated from the straight line. But the models of 
rather, the UAVs didn't have that problem from the outset. Coming back to your question about the nuclear activity in this country. No, no that's very true. Uh, I, I mean, as a, as a, uh, a statement of fact, we don't actually build any aeroplanes entirely ourselves anymore anyway. We are in a, a global um, business with global supply chain. And I guess, just going back to Keith Hayward's question, the key question for us to ask is, in 10 to 20 years' time, which bits of the UAV system would we wish to be the world leaders in? I mean, the answer might even be the ground station, for all I know. We can't be good at everything. Um, if we want to play in a global game, we have to be very clear about the areas in which we intend to win, because we won't win by accident anymore. You win by design. I mean, one of the, 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 the issues that we, we, we seem to do a lot of here is uh, technology foresight. Okay, I don't, I don't mean this in any derogatory sense, but it will be so much easier if you said, in 2020, we want to be the world leader in cameras. Because once you've said that, I know what technologies you need. I don't need to go around scratching my head. It's obvious. If we said in 2020 we were to be the world leaders in UAV systems, then I suspect that we could very quickly write down the technology areas in which we would need to be the best in order to achieve that position. And the answer may be, uh, something like software development or flight control systems. It probably won't be airframes. So, you know, we're thinking way beyond the traditional boundaries here because that's where aviation is going. And I, I don't think I'm being a traitor to the Wright brothers or Cayley to say that. Actually, I think this is, this is a perfectly uh, proper and legitimate extrapolation of their legacy that there is so much more to do and so much more benefit to be gained from flying machines than we have yet um, produced. The challenge that we face is how do we maintain our position? Perhaps we don't want to maintain our position, but if, if we don't want to do it, then we have to find something else which fills the vacuum. Because aerospace is strategically important to us today. You asked the question, and where do we look for leadership? <coughs> because there will be changes, and eventually, when I am long gone... I, I'm just tempted to say, Michael, if, if we'd been having this discussion a hundred years ago, then somebody would have got up and said, well, of course, the cavalry will always be important, and we'll always have to put men on horses into battle in order to make sure that we get a proper result. And, you know, it, 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 the First World War lasted for, what, four years? The Second World War lasted for between five and six. And the rate of progress, the rate of drag through of technology was astronomical. I mean, we are still living off the legacy of World War II. So short periods of intense activity can bring massive, massive change. And I'm just a bit worried that we all sit here and say, oh, well, you know, in 2050, we might just get the last man out of the cockpit. I'm rather more inclined to think that he'll be out by 2010. 
But of course, I can't put that into a plan, can I? Uh, it's, as I said in the in the presentation, it's events that are kicking this along. September the 11th put UAVs on the agenda. Afghanistan has propelled them up the agenda, and I strongly suspect that the uh, the attack. Where was it? Where was there was the last Yemen? Yemen. That the, the Yemen experience has pushed it even higher up the agenda, uh, and it's it's that it's that that. Um, makes me think that change may be coming faster than we all suspect. Dr. Lyle. You mentioned three aspects. There's the whole Pentagon. There's the transport of people. There's also the transport of goods. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's uh, you need the soft entry points uh, in, order to, in order to establish the credibility. I mean, I would say that, that we're not looking for new physics or fantastic new technology here. These autonomous systems exist today. They are simply not integrated into platforms which are injected into either the defense domain or the commercial domain. But we don't, we don't need to find new science. It's a bit like the Wright brothers. The bits you need are all out there. The skill is recognizing it and bringing them into play. I mean, I, I think we're all, we all tend to be, uh, you know, we, we have a, a short horizon or a near horizon. And the people who really innovate and move uh, things forward are those who see things that the rest of us don't see. And I think there's a terrific amount of potential for that. I, I don't see the need for huge national investment in research. I think what you need is creativity, lateral thinking, an application. I think that uh, final question, um, taking the aeroplanes that were flying 100 years ago and putting today's technology on, is a good point at which to close the questions. And can I call upon Mr. John Story to propose the vote of facts? Mr. President, um, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I, I must confess that. Uh, when I saw the title of tonight's lecture, I was momentarily confused because I'd just been reading an article by Germaine Greer on the subject, Do We Really Need Men? <laughs> so when I saw that Ian was asking the question, Is the future unmanned? I wondered what he was up to. <laughs> Professor Pohl was never one to shirk controversy, and perhaps I should repeat that. <laughs> Professor Pohl was never one to shirk controversy, and I thought he might, we might be in for some gender bashing. However, on, uh, on reading the abstract, I was reassured, because it was obvious that he was going to talk about uninhabited aircraft, or at least aeroplanes without a human in the cockpit. Now, Many of us, myself included, have been building small UAVs for years as a hobby. Mine were always made from balsa wood and paper. But uh, today's aero modelers use composite materials and plastic foam and build vehicles up to oh, four or five meters in span. And these can do quite remarkable things. In something that Ian didn't mention, in August 1998, a 2.7 meter span composite UAV uh, flew across the Atlantic 
3,300 kilometers. Flew from Newfoundland, Newfoundland to Scotland in just under 27 hours. It had a 20cc engine and used one and a half gallons of fuel. Well, in his talk tonight, Ian has taken us from such small vehicles. An early example, as he mentioned, was the steam-driven model of Langley to the current UAVs like Phoenix. And here I might just point out that Phoenix, I think, is something homemade, and it was all made at home. Uh, Predator and the Global Hawk, which um, my bumper fun book of aeroplanes tells me that that can fly for 30 hours at 65,000 feet with a range of 12,000 miles. That's quite something. But then Ian took us on to the exciting uh, challenges ahead. It's clear on the military side that there's no doubt that uh, unmanned vehicles in a surveillance or deterrent role can be a real force for security, stability and peace. On the civil side, Professor Poll has reminded us of the possible benefits of taking the, the pilot out of the cockpit. We're getting used to driverless trains, for example, on the London Docklands Light Railway. Perhaps we can get used to a pilotless aeroplane. I think what worries me is the question, can systems be made so safe that they can't be interfered with? Uh, most computers have suffered at one time or another from a virus, and we've all heard about the misguided hackers who, whose whole aim is to cause confusion and disruption. I have visions of, of setting off in my pilotless plane for the sunny Mediterranean, only to be rerouted by some prankster to the colder climes of Iceland or Siberia. On the military side, is it ever possible for some idiot to send a signal to an incoming military vehicle saying, return to base? That would be unfortunate. If the pilot does come out of the cockpit, then perhaps he could at least be allowed to sit in the front row of seats. <laughs> Tonight, Professor Ian Pohl has given us what I think was an excellent, authoritative and thought-provoking lecture on the past, present and future of unmanned aircraft. It was a lecture worthy of the two pioneers after which it is named. Congratulations, Ian, and thank you.